science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. I feel it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about being your parent's child. You know how, as you get older, you start to realize that despite your best intentions, you're turning out exactly like your parent? (laughs) I used to think, oh man, my mom checks out all the time. She's never present in the moment. And then the other day, I was walking down the street, head in the clouds, probably thinking about a story, and then I ran directly into a crotch height pole (laughs) at full speed. It felt pretty much like you might expect it to feel. Uh, Obviously, the first thing I did was look around and see if anyone had seen this happen. I was almost kind of disappointed that no one had. Like, it almost would have made me feel better if at least somebody got a laugh out of it. But you know what? First of all, why are there crotch height poles? What purpose does a crotch height pole serve? If you're making a pole, just make it go all the way up so we can all see it in our peripheral vision. (laughs) And then, of course, next I realized oh my God, this is just like my mom, to be so distracted and not present in the moment. I am becoming my mother. So basically what I'm trying to say is I was hit in the crotch both literally and metaphorically. (laughs) Let's hope this journey ends better for our two storytellers today. Our first story is from Steve Scott. It was recorded in February 2019 at J3 at Cambridge Junction in Cambridge, UK. The theme that night was family. My dad and I are sat together, patiently waiting. The waiting room is busy, but it's, there's not much chatter. It's quiet. Presumably everyone's in the same position as us, waiting to have a conversation about a potentially life-changing operation. I'm there to support my dad. Um, we're a close family. My parents, my brother, and I all live within spitting distance of each other in Cambridge. Um, And we're always there for each other. We support each other. We laugh together. Um, But I'm the scientist in the family. I'm the one who's meant to know about biology and medical stuff. Um, You know, I've got a PhD. I used to do research in heart disease. So I'm the one that's got to help my dad in this situation. My mom and my brother are not so good in these kind of moments. Um, They're a little bit squeamish. Um, They don't do great in those medical dramas you see on TV. And my brother in particular has got a bit of a phobia about hospitals and has a tendency to faint. So I've got to step up. (laughs) So I'm happy to do that. I'm here to support my dad. So dad's got this bit of a tendency to check out during hospital appointments, medical appointments. He kind of gets a little bit overwhelmed by the situation and tends to kind of switch off a little bit and his mind starts going. So it's useful I'm here. I can kind of take mental notes and report back afterwards. So eventually dad's name gets called and we walk our our way into a gray room 
a very grey room with grey walls, grey floors, a grey desk, grey chairs. But sat at the desk is uh, a handsome man wearing a nice clean cut suit looking everything you want to see in the man who's going to perform open heart surgery on your dad. And he starts to tell us what we're to expect. He's done some tests on dad and he's talking us through what those tests mean. And dad's got a leaky heart valve and he's going to do an operation to sort that out, to replace that heart valve. All good. That's what we were expecting. And then he continues. You've also got an aneurysm in the major artery from your heart. What? <laughs> That's not what we were expecting at all. I look at dad and, yep, he's gone. <laughs> he's no longer in the room with me. So this is where I need to step up. Pay attention. We're going to get the third degree when we get home from mum, so I need to make sure I'm making notes here. So the doctor starts telling us what's going to happen, and he's very reassuring. This is not unexpected for him. This is normal. It's quite common for there to be uh, an aneurysm when you have a leaky heart valve. My mind, however, is going aneurysm. <laughs> That's not good at all. They kind of pop, don't they? And that means game over. Um, but I take that in. And, you know, in essence, he's saying this is a simple plumbing job. We get the plumbing sorted and you'll be fine. And actually, you're getting a pretty good deal. You're getting life-saving surgery, not once but twice. And you get it all for that bargain price of one operation. So I'm feeling kind of reassured. Dad, well, he's gone. He's, he's, he's nowhere in this room anymore. He's got that glazed look over his face. So eventually we leave the room and we head back to the car and we're kind of making strange small talk. Um, and then we sit together in the car. And I realize this is where our roles are flipping slightly. You know, I've had Dad reassuring me for all my life as I've been growing up. And now I need to provide him with a bit of steel and a bit of reassurance. And so I say to him, it's a simple plumbing job, Dad. We just need to get the plumbing and get that sorted, and then you'll be fine. It's all fixed. Everything will be fine. And I think I'm saying that as much for myself as I am for my dad. But in essence, that becomes our mantra over the next few months in the build-up to this operation. It's a simple plumbing job. You'll be fine. And so a few months later, Mum and I take Dad to the hospital, to Patworth, and we, he goes and has his operation. They fix the plumbing. Everything's fine. It all goes really well. Dad's recovering well. He's in good spirits when Mum visits him the, after the operation. I think that's partly because he's high as a kite on the morphine, but he's in good spirits, and he's flirting with the nurses in that embarrassing dad way. <laughs> um, but he's okay. He's, he's on the road to recovery. And so the following day, I'm staying with mum, looking after her. Um, and we get up as normal, ready for another day. 
preparing to go and visit dad in hospital later on that day. We have our breakfast and then we go upstairs to get ourselves ready for the day. So mum goes into the bedroom and faffs about like mum does in the bedroom. And I go into the bathroom and start brushing my teeth. The phone starts to ring. And I hear mum's tiny little footsteps walking across the bedroom. And then the phone stops ringing and I can hear mum's muffled voice on the end. And I can hear her going, okay, uh-huh. But every time I hear her voice, it gets softer and it gets lower. And I can tell just by hearing that one side of the conversation that this is not a good conversation. So my heart starts racing. My brain starts going over time. I'm thinking, well, Something's not good. What's up with that? What's happening? Is this something really bad? Something catastrophic happened overnight. So I start to make my way into the bedroom and I see mum sat there on the edge of the bed, still with the phone to her ear. And she's got her shoulders hunched over and she's not saying an awful lot. And it's clear from her face that things aren't great. So I sit next to her and I wait for the call to end, trying to get some gauge of how bad this is. And eventually mum puts the phone down and I ask her, is everything okay? And mum goes, he's got a chest infection. He's back in intensive care. And then she starts crying. And I have to step up again. I've got to help mum here. And I'm putting my arm around her and making sure she's okay, consoling her as best as I can. But in my head, I'm thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not what this was meant to happen. And, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm not mature enough for this. I'm, I can't help mum in this situation. How am I meant to help her? What's what's this going to mean? How am I going to support my dad? How am I going to support my mom? And my brain is whizzing round and round and round and round and then boom, I'm out. I fainted. I'm out of Sparco. I'm laying on my back on the bed. And then I hear mum's voice saying my name over and over again. Steve. And then getting a bit more anxious, Steve. And eventually I come to feeling pretty lightheaded and I can see my mum kind of sat over me. She even goes as far as to slap my face, which I think was a bit too much. <laughs> but I come around and um, mum starts apologising. Starts saying, I'm really sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I've got to get a grip, I'm really sorry, Steve. And eventually I kind of sit up and, and then I just keep moving forward and put my head between my knees because that's what I need right now. My head is really light. And I think that's partly because I've just fainted, but also because I think there's just a weight kind of lifted off me. That pressure that I've been feeling for the last few months and all the worries and things that I've been feeling, it's just suddenly no longer a secret and I'm sharing it. And mum and I chat and, you know, mum apologizes. And I think she's realized that this is my dad as well 
as well as her husband. This is my dad, and her fears are the same as the fears that I've been having. And so we vow we need to support each other. Mum says, you know, I need to support you. I need to help you. So my mum's back. She's being my mum again. And I vow to support her as best I can, even though I'm feeling like I'm a bit out of my debt. So that day, later on, we make our plans to go to the hospital to visit dad in intensive care. And I'm worrying about what that's going to look like. You know, we've all watched those medical dramas and, you know, Intensive care is never a great word, so I'm wondering what sort of state my dad's going to be in. And we walk through the doors and we pass people lying flat on beds with all kinds of machines connected to them and beeping and all kinds of noises. And then I look across the ward and I can see my dad. And he's sat in a chair <laughs> and he's got a, what looks like a full gas mask on his face. Um, so he's basically being fed oxygen through a mask that covers the whole of his face. But underneath that mask, I can see there's my dad giving me a reassuring, wry smile as if to say, son, I'm all right. And I feel so much better. I feel so much better. And so we go and we spend a bit of time with dad and, um, it's ridiculous because he's got this bloody stupid mask all over his face and and then he has to eat a fruit salad and he's picking individual bits of fruit and having to lift it underneath the mask and try and get it in and he's looking so guilty about it as if he's eating some kind of contraband that he shouldn't be eating in hospital it's fruit dad for goodness sake <laughs> and so he's doing okay we managed to persuade my brother to go and visit as well um despite all of you know my brother's fears about hospitals he does really well and he, you know, agrees to go in and he spends some time with dad and he, he does great. And then the nurse comes and says, we need to take some of your dad's blood. And that's when my brother makes a, his excuses and makes a swift exit and makes his way to the door and goes flying, faints completely out of it again. <laughs> and we look back at those days and we often talk about my brother fainting in ICU and we, laugh at him and point at him and it's all good fun <laughs> and i don't think my brother nor my dad realized that i fainted too it's a little secret between me and my mum and now a hundred people in this room <laughs> but in essence that day marked a real change um you know my dad is the guy that i look up to i aspire to be like him and he's given me so much guidance reassurance support help love through my years growing up he's even done a few plumbing jobs for me around the house which is great but now it's flipped a little bit and he's now looking for me for some guidance reassurance and support and that's a little bit weird but it's fine because he's my dad. I love him. And I'll always be there for him. That was Steve Scott. 
Steve is a science communicator and public engagement professional working at the Wellcome Genome Campus near Cambridge in the UK, as well as one of Story Collider's newest producers. You can catch him hosting our regular show in Cambridge. He has a passion for helping scientists to find ways of sharing their stories and a particular interest in engaging people with genetics and genomics. Steve also loves musical theater, exploring nature, music that gets you dancing, and seeing the best in people. Steve, you're a lovely human being. Our next story today is from Tiana Schneiderman. It was recorded in February 2019 at the Oberon Theater in Boston. The theme that night was Rocky Road. The room around me is white and shiny with chrome finishes, and there's the dull hum of scientific equipment running in the background. I'm standing on a step stool, pipetting water from a glass beaker into these tiny little tubes, and the sleeves on my oversized lab coat are rolled up way too many times. The safety goggles keep on slipping down my nose, and yet I have the biggest grin on my face because I'm six years old, and mom gave me an important job to do. She's busy preparing chemical samples to put into the machine that spins around really fast, and she's talking to me in Slovak about how cool atoms and molecules are. When she finishes up, she gives me a high five and a hug and tells me what a good little scientist I am. This was my normal. I never thought that math and science were just for boys because my mom was a scientist and she was pretty cool. You see, she started her second PhD program when I was four and she finished when I was eight. And there usually wasn't money for a babysitter, so she'd take my younger sister and I into lab. The baby would be napping in the carriage and I'd get to play the role of senior pipette specialist. I still really don't know how she did it. She was working full time and she was also getting a PhD and she was raising two little girls whose father worked hundreds of miles away from home. She was amazing. She would write these little notes and put them into my lunchbox every morning and she would read me the book about space as many times as I asked for it, which was a lot. And I never knew how hard she worked because she made everything into a game. Toast with canned tomatoes was a special celebration we got at the end of the month and not the only meal we could afford to have. My mother is brave and she is stubborn and she is the hardest worker I know and I was perpetually in awe of her. All I wanted was to make her proud. So when I was little I did everything she asked of me. I swam competitively and I played piano and I started volunteering in a nursing home at the age of seven. And when I was in the fourth grade I decided I would do the hardest thing I could think of doing which was learning Chinese. So I spent every Sunday for the next four years in Chinese as a second language classes. But I also started to learn what it meant for my mom to not be proud of me. When I was in the sixth grade, I overheard my parents arguing about whose fault it was that I got a B plus in math on a midterm report. At some point in time, my motivation shifted. I wanted to do more than just make my mom proud of me. You see, I hadn't realized everything she'd gone through to get to where she was. Sure, I knew that she came from Slovakia three years before I was born to start a PhD program, and I also knew that she left that PhD program shortly after I was born, but I didn't really know the details of the in-between. Around the age of 12, I asked her about it. My mom's first PhD advisor liked to hire Czech and Slovak students who couldn't speak English, so that way he could abuse and exploit them. When my mom got pregnant with me, the unplanned oopsie, he told her he would never grant a PhD to a mother. 
When it came time for her qualifying exam, the rest of her committee thought she should pass, but he stated that she didn't meet the internal standards of his research group. The three deans she talked to, all old white men, told her that there was nothing more they could do for her. My mom couldn't face the prospect of going back to Slovakia without a PhD, so she decided to stay in this country, something she had never planned to do. This revelation shocked me. All of a sudden, I felt responsible. I felt responsible for her delayed success, and I felt responsible for the pain that our entire family felt at being separated by an ocean. And I resolved myself then and there that I would do whatever it took to be worthy of that sacrifice. Because my mother had chosen me. She dropped out of graduate school to have me. She left her entire family and friends and country behind to have me. And I would do whatever it took to be worthy of that sacrifice and to honor her. So at that point in time in my life, honoring her sacrifices meant getting into the best college I possibly could. So what did I do? I took every AP and honors class I could and I aced them and I started volunteering more. I became president of a service organization and I, I even interned at a Fortune 500 company in high school. I did everything I could possibly think of in order to get into the best college I could and honor the sacrifices she made and make her proud. But it seemed like whatever I did, it was never enough. My mom was always asking me why I wasn't doing more, why I wasn't volunteering more, why I got a 93 on that exam instead of a 95, and she would chastise me for being moody and tell me that I was setting a bad example for my younger sisters. It seemed like no matter how hard I tried, how much I did, it was never enough, and I got depressed. <laughs> I applied to eight undergraduate institutions. The first rejection came in the parking lot of my fencing gym. The second and third rejections came at home, and then I got into my safety school, so yay, I'm going to college. But the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh rejections all came in on the same day. I very rapidly felt my entire sense of self go away. At first, I was devastated and crushed, but then I got angry. I didn't get angry at the schools. I could rationalize and justify and explain all of that. I mean. I just hadn't done enough. I had an endless, soulless litany of accomplishments and awards, and there was no passion and no drive behind them. I just wasn't good enough. I wasn't angry at the schools. I was angry with my mother. I was angry because no matter how much I had sacrificed, giving up sleep and friendships and my own sanity, no matter how much I had done, I, I hadn't been enough, I hadn't done enough to be worthy of the sacrifices she made. And I was angry that I felt my entire value and worth as a human being were tied up in my success as an academic. I was just very angry. And so I started doing everything I could to get back at her. So I wore black because I knew she hated black and I wore makeup every day because I knew that that would get in her skin. And I even started dating an unkind boy who encouraged that anger and bitterness and resentment. Every time I came home from college, there was a war waged between us. There was this one time we went on a hike and uh, we, we had an argument because my mother threatened to financially cut me off unless I majored in something more practical than physics, like engineering. <laughs> I refused because I'm as stubborn as my mother is. And we spent the next several hours arguing about whether or not physics was an appropriate major for me to have. Two hours later, 
neither of us had budged, and we were lost in the middle of the woods without a map and a very sharply dwindling water supply. We spent the rest of the day in this tense, angry silence trying to find our way back to the trailhead. Things escalated between us. Slights from one of us turned into escalations by the other until we were fighting and arguing about silly, meaningless things until one day I went too far. In my senior year of college, I told my mother that I didn't want her in my life anymore. The truth is, I just didn't want the relationship we had, and I didn't really know how to de-escalate it or make it better, and the only thing I could think to do was to end it. I changed my phone number, and I didn't give her the new one. I hoped she'd ask me for it, but she didn't. So as the days passed and the silence grew, I had a lot of time to think. I had a lot of time to think about the fact that the obligation and duty I felt to her was an unsustainable force that was eating me alive. And I had to begin to learn how to live my life as more than just a reaction to my mother. I had to start framing things in terms of I want instead of she'd hate. I'm not gonna lie, it was a huge relief, but there was also this deep sense of loss because there was a gaping raw wound where I needed her love and I didn't think I could get it back. Seven months after I cut my mother out of my life, I was sitting in my college kitchen with some friends baking and making stupid jokes when I heard a knock on my door. I was quite confused. I wasn't expecting anybody else, but I went to open it. She's standing there with tears in her eyes, and I flinch, expecting her to yell at me. There's an endless pause as she's struggling for words. I just needed to see you, to know that you were okay. I wanted to give you a hug. In that moment, I knew that I had been enough from the beginning. Thank you. That was Tayana Schneiderman. Tayana is a PhD student in planetary sciences at MIT. Although she thought astronomy would be a career that let her look up, she finds she spends a lot of time reading papers, writing code, and analyzing data. She's interested in detecting and characterizing exoplanetary systems to better understand the way systems form and evolve. And in her free time, she knits, reads, and goes on backpacking adventures. I have to say, the endings to these stories today have exploded my art into a million pieces. Thanks so much, Steve and Tiana. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Fiona Calvert, Stephen Puente, Ari Daniel, and Catherine Wu. The podcast is edited by senior podcast editor Zoe Saunders, with help from Gwen Hogan and June Quinn. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Cambridge Junction and Oberon for hosting these shows and to crotch height poles everywhere for teaching people valuable lessons. Thanks for listening.
save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.